What does it mean to be in the light? Like I said, we're starting a seven-week series through the three letters that John writes, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And what's so powerful about these letters is over and over and over again, he talks about what it means to live in the light, not just to believe in God, but to actually live in the light. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking of our daughter, Brinley. So we've got Charlie, who's a six-year-old, and then we got Brinley, who's four years old. And, and Brinley is at this stage in her childlike faith where she's really wrestling with how Jesus is a part of every aspect of her life, not just a small aspect or not just something she does on Sundays in Purpose Kids or on Wednesdays in Awanas, but every part of her life is being worked out and revolves around her relationship with Jesus. And what's so incredible about Brinley is she's like me. She's just an auditory processor. She just out loud processes everything she's thinking and feeling. And what's been incredible is to watch some of this take fold in her. In fact, we took her to the movies recently. We took all of our kids to the movies and we were watching The Incredibles. And as we were watching, yeah, yeah, Incredibles. As we were watching The Incredibles, all of a sudden, it was actually at the previews, before any, any of it had started, Brinley stands up in this packed movie theater, and she goes, this is the best movie ever! And we're like, it's the previews. It's not even there yet, right? She's so excited. But then her faith begins to come out. In fact, at a, at a certain part of the movie, it became really scary, and there were these lights flashing, and we could tell some of our kids were like trying to kind of process it, and other kids in the theater are a little bit scared. And then Brinley, again, she gets out of her seat. In the, middle of the, in the middle of the movie, she gets out of her seat, and she goes like this, Holy Spirit, give me peace! Just screaming, right? Asking for God's peace, and then... You know, Brinley's a little sinner just like we are, and, and she, uh, she uh, a few moments later, noticed she finished all of her popcorn, and, and the, the stranger in front of her hadn't finished his yet. And so she literally just gets out of her seat, grabs the popcorn from this guy and starts eating it, right? And that's like, that's not good, but we, she just did so quickly. So we're like, okay. So she sits back down. She sits back down and, and has this just incredible time at the movies, but then... God's continuing to kind of work in her heart, and then she's continuing to express this relationship with God. A, a few weeks ago, we were asking her to clean, and we said, Brindley, here's this pile of stuff. You need to carry all of it up to your room. It's all you got to do. Just get all this stuff to, up to your room. But she's got a little bit of the flair of the dramatic in her, and, and so she literally out loud, Sarah and I are over in the other room. She says this out loud. She says, God, help me, right? Like really claiming. She goes, God, help me. You know I can't do this without you right? Which is just so awesome. And, and Sarah and I have like a running Google Doc of our kids' quotes that we just are constantly writing down, and it's been absolutely incredible. And then, and then a little while ago, uh, Brinley was supposed to go on, a, on an ice cream date with her friend Gracie, and, and Gracie and her had been talking about this all day, and they were so excited about it, and Brinley was telling me how pumped she was for this, and then for whatever reason, Gracie couldn't come anymore, and, and Brinley had like a faith crisis. I mean, this is a really big deal to her, and, and she's trying to figure out what to do, and she's crying, and she comes and sits on my lap at one point, and then she says this, she says, Daddy, how could this be a part of God's plan? I was like, I don't know, babe. It's just somehow he's working all things for good, including this tragedy in your life. And, and then the last one, and, and this one, this one hurt this week. This one was rather painful. And, you know, I love that she's working out her faith, but uh, it, it, was, it was a little offensive to me. She, uh, she was driving with Sarah, and she said, Mommy, I, ha I have a thought that I need to tell you. And Sarah's like, you can always tell us anything. What's up? And she goes, I, I don't think you're going to like it. And, and Sarah said, it's okay, you can tell me. What are you thinking? And she said, well, mommy, I really like your face. 
I don't like daddy's face. <laughs> I really like your face. I don't like daddy's face. And then she says this, total pastor's kid. Then she's like, but I really want God to change my heart. <laughs> Which I think Sarah's been praying that for years. And so they were able to join together. And, and I got home. I got home that night and Sarah told me this. And so I said, Brinley, we need to have a talk. We need to talk. And she sat down and I said, Brinley, I like mommy's face more than daddy's face too. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, but do you kind of like my face? Like just trying to work it out with her, right? And what's been so fun is that she's at this childlike faith. It's becoming really clear and evident that following Jesus is, again, not just a place she goes, but it's something that has worked its way into every part of her life. As we study this book, as we open it up, I think what God desires for all of us today is that we would have eyes wide open. And what I mean by that is a kind of faith that's lived out in every part of our life. A, a kind of faith where we're eyes wide open to what it is that God wants to teach us and how he wants to work in and through us. That when we have eyes wide open, that you can see God, you can spot the darkness, and you can walk in his light. Today, I believe God wants us to see him he wants us to be able to spot the darkness within, and he wants us to walk in his light. Well, this, this ancient letter is a, is a very powerful letter. We're going to talk about some of the context in a minute, but the church historian, the fourth century church historian, Jerome, he talks about the author, John the Apostle, the, the beloved disciple of Jesus. And he says that John became so weak in his older years. He became so frail, and yet he would love to go into the churches and encourage them. In fact, he wanted to encourage them so greatly that people would have to carry him into these congregations, and that he would always begin his messages this way. He would say, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And, and his hearers, would, would, they, they grew tired of this, and they would ask him, they would say, John, why do you keep telling us the same thing? And he said this, because it is the Lord's command, and if this is all you do, it is enough. This letter, this letter is a powerful, incredible letter. But before we jump into the actual words, I want to rewind a little bit. I want to look at the context and the background behind this letter. So let's talk first about the author. The author, we believe, according to Irenaeus, who in the year 180 AD, he proclaimed that the letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, so there's three of them, that they were written by John the Apostle, that they were written by the eyewitness disciple of Jesus, the beloved disciple of Jesus, as is recorded in the Gospel of John. Now, what's interesting is why should we trust Irenaeus? Because Irenaeus was discipled by a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp was discipled by John, the disciple of Jesus, discipled the, the apostle of Jesus. And so Irenaeus is kind of that, that third tier. And he said that this was authored by John the apostle. Well, Papias actually in the year 150 AD, he actually disagrees with this. That Papias said, no, because in, in 2 John and 3 John, it actually describes the author as the elder. And Papias believed that it actually wasn't John the Apostle, but it was another eyewitness of Jesus. Now, all the evidence, or a lot of the evidence, points in the direction of this letter being written by the Apostle John. But what's incredibly important and absolutely essential is that the author of these three letters was an eyewitness. 
It was somebody who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who was familiar with the stories, who saw the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is incredibly important. If you're new to your faith or if you're uh, just kind of exploring it again and you're going, why can we even trust anything that's written here? I mean, you know, I got this when I was a third grader or my grandparents or parents or spouses. It's important for me to look at it. Why should we trust that the words that are written here are worthy of our time, that they're truth, that they actually point us to the one true God? It's because they were written by eyewitnesses. They were written by people who were actually there. And we're going to see that as we open up the letter together. When was it actually written? Again, scholars believe it was written between 85 and 100 AD. Who were the recipients? The recipients, I want to show you a map real quick, were, were the house churches in Asia Minor. So if you remember when we studied the book of Revelation together, which was also written by John the Apostle, we learned that uh, Domitian, who was the Roman emperor of the day, Domitian had had John banned to the island of Patmos because John was proclaiming that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And this threatened the government system of his day. And so he had John banished to the island of Patmos, which was like this, uh, this colony of, of prisoners, essentially, where they would hang out and, and oftentimes just die there. Well, from Patmos, John writes the book of Revelation to the churches in Asia Minor. Well, we know that Domitian eventually died and John was still alive, and so he was released from the island of Patmos and most likely sent back to Ephesus. And so historians believe that John wrote these letters from Ephesus, but that they went to all of the churches in Asia Minor. This was the graphic that Pastor Glenn uh, referenced a lot as he was preaching through Revelation. So this letter went to a bunch of house churches, which are kind of like campuses or church plants or these communities that would meet in these small houses together. And this was a group of people that were highly influenced by John's gospel and by these letters. So this was a group of churches that he was discipling, that he was pouring into. There were two issues at play, which is really interesting. Sometimes we read these letters and we go, was everything just peachy keen back then? Because, you know, sometimes we have small group conflict or church conflict or things in our personal lives that we got to work through. Was everything just so great for them? Actually, when these letters were written, it was during one of the most fiercest conflicts in the history of the church. Because this early church that, that had its bedrock on the reality that Jesus God in a bod showed up, died on a cross, rose from the dead, was being questioned. In fact, there were two heresies that were being floated around in these communities. The first one was Gnosticism, which is essentially the belief that the soul is good, but the body is bad. And so the goal is to remove yourself as much as you can from the body. And what went along with that was the other heresy, docetism, which essentially says that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead in bodily form, that it, he, his disciples only thought he was a body, but it was more of like this spiritual resurrection. And the reason this is incredibly dangerous theology is because it is the exact opposite of what the Gospels record. In fact, the Gospels record, all four of them, the eyewitness historical accounts of the life of Jesus tell us over and over again that Jesus actually died and that his body actually rose from the dead. Because of this, we can trust him. So these theologies are beginning to circle in the community, and it's beginning, the, the, the faith that John is trying to help establish for these people is beginning to be questioned. It's really interesting because this letter oftentimes gets referred to as the letter of love and forgiveness, and it's true because John will say, God is light and God is love. 
But in the same letters, he'll say, and we know who the children of the devil are. So John warns against believing things about Jesus that aren't true because they ultimately lead us astray from the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. So let's jump into the passage together with that background. First John chapter one, beginning in verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Again, like I was talking about, this author, this author, most likely John the Apostle, this author has seen Jesus. This author has has felt Jesus. This author has heard Jesus. This author has experienced Jesus. What he's trying to get across to you and I is, I know what I'm talking about. You can trust me, and this is personal for me. Jesus is not just some theological ascent, some, some nice idea that I think is really interesting in the academy. No, no, following Jesus has changed everything for this author. And not because he had heard about it from someone else, but because he had seen it with his own eyes. And then he describes Jesus in a very interesting way. He describes Jesus as life eternal and life appeared. This is an important theological moment because what the author is saying is Jesus has always existed. He is life eternal, that Jesus was in the very beginning with God, that Jesus is God as his gospel begins. And yet at the same time, Jesus appeared. And when Jesus appeared, everything changed. History was turned upside down. The view of God was blown out of the water. Because at this moment in history, when the life appeared, when Jesus appeared, he entered into the mess, into the brokenness, and appeared to us, not in some spiritual way, in a very physical way flesh, blood, sweat, tears kind of way. He continues, he says, verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and fellowship, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What's really interesting here is Jesus, or John, as he's writing about what it means to walk in the light, He literally describes what has inspired our mission statement as a church. But before we talk about our mission statement, what is our vision as a church? Our vision is to see everyone everywhere following Jesus. And that's not just some nice idea we thought of. That was the great commission. That's what Jesus said to his followers before he left him. He said, look, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey me. That's what I want you to do, to go and make disciples of of all nations. This means Jesus' vision was not just local, it was not just global, it was all-encompassing. That Jesus had a vision that all people would know him as the Lord of the universe, and he proved that he was by dying and rising from the dead. 
You see, I love that Jesus' vision was for everyone. This means whatever circumstance, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever's going on, whatever race or ethnicity you are, whatever your socioeconomic background is everywhere, whatever stage of life you're in, wherever you are location-wise, this is why we stream our services on Facebook. This is why we send them out all across the world. This is why we have a, a global perspective on reaching people is because Jesus' heart is for all people. This means if you just got out of prison, Jesus is for you. If you've grown up in an incredible home, Jesus is for you. If your background, if your story is full of brokenness and pain, Jesus is for you. He desires that all people would follow him. But the question is, how do we do that? What well, Purpose Church, we've borrowed the words from 1 John. We believe that living on mission, the kind of life God desires for you to have, is one where you are connecting with God, you are connecting with others, and you are connecting others with God. The, the word that John uses here is the word fellowship, which fellowship literally means intimacy. It means deep friendship. But it means more than that. It means, it means that because you're together, there is some kind of transformation in your life which is why we need to pause for a second. I think some of us are very confused about the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. The kind of relationship is not, Lord, come, come jump on board with me and what I'm doing. The kind of relationship Jesus wants to have with all of his followers is the kind where as we submit to him, as we serve him, as we love him, as we grow in our relationship with him, he actually transforms us into his image. And so what John says is he says, it's about proclaiming, connecting others with God. It's about having fellowship with us, connecting with one another. And it's about having fellowship with the Father and the Son, connecting with God. I want to show you something that our pastors developed actually at a pastor's retreat recently. We're, we're calling it the vision loop. And you've heard us talk a lot about our vision and our mission and our values so that we're focused as a church. But uh, Pastor Adrian actually kind of helped with Pastor Greg sort of develop what it is that this looks like to follow Jesus, which maybe some of you are going, yeah, what does it look like? like what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We believe it's about connecting with God. It's connecting with others, and then it's connecting others with God. And as we live in this loop, we are fulfilling the Great Commission. We are living out what it means to walk in the light, as John is going to talk about in a few minutes. That this fellowship with God, fellowship with others, and then inviting others into a fellowship with God is what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. And we have our values here. And what's crazy is that as we live in this loop, as this becomes the thing that wakes us up in the morning, as we are passionate about joining God's mission and purpose for the world, that we become these kinds of people as we become more like Christ. You've heard us talk about having a small, a big, and a serve. A very practical way to do this is, where's your small group? Who's in your small group? Where's your big? What's that service that you gather with the multi-ethnic, the multi-generational body to worship God and to learn about him? And then where are you serving? But maybe a better question to ask yourself is this. As you're thinking about your small and your big and your serve, how are those things helping you fulfill the vision that God has for your life? How are they helping you live a life on mission? I think one of the best ways to do that is to step into a group. 
that in fact, for the next week or so, we're going to be starting tons of new groups around this series. And if you haven't jumped into a group yet, it is time. And if you're new to Purpose Church, I can't think of a better way. I mean, it feels like a big church and a great way to feel like a small church is to connect in a life group. But the reason we do that is not so that our life group can just meet and we can feel like we have our people and we're good. It's so that we might be moved to live on mission. And I wonder if some of us, me included, have detrimentally and unequally prioritized one of these aspects in our relationship with God. That maybe, maybe you, you go to three services or you serve during three services or, or you're in 18 life groups. Like every day, you're going to all these different groups. But you're never prioritizing connecting with God. You're never prioritizing walking outside into your neighborhood and talking to the people that are close to you about the Jesus that's changing your life. Then you're missing it. It's like, you know, when you're on a plane and they, they run you through the emergency scenario, right? Like if your plane crashes, it's going to be horrible. But for some reason, it's important to put this mask on because, you know, the, the oxygen's going to go out. And, and what do they always say? They say, before you try to put the oxygen masks on everyone else, put it on yourself first. And some of us, I think, in the same way, run around in our spiritual life and, and we're constantly putting the masks on other people through serving. Or we're constantly putting the masks on other people through connecting with others. And what happens if you do that for too long, you're on the fast track to suffocation. And in spiritual terms, you're on the fast track to burnout. Having that priority is essential. I've shared this analogy with you before, but I think it's worth sharing again. It's, it's like as a parent with our kids. I mean, I feel the tension every single day to wrap my entire world around my kids because it feels like they need it. I think of every spare moment that I have, it's critical that I only invest in my kids because I only have a number of years with them. It just hit me that Charlie's six. Like, if he's going to leave the house at 18, that would be awesome. If he's going to leave the house at 18, we're one-third of the way through parenting Charlie. I told this to Sarah, and we were like, oh, my goodness. Like, we have done a horrible job. What are we gonna, how are we going to make up for it? And it could drive me to be like, man, I just need to spend all of my time pouring into Charlie. But because I'm a high school pastor and I work with lots of students and get the privilege to do some counseling, what I see over and over and over again is that when parents don't prioritize their relationships with each other first, God first, each other next, and then your kids, that the kids suffer. In fact, something I tell our kids and I tell whenever I'm in counseling sessions with couples, I tell them this same thing all the time. The best gift you can give your kids is a great relationship with your spouse. That's the best gift you can give your kids. And I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. In our home, it was getting so bad. The kids were crying whenever Sarah and I would try to go on a date night. And so I said, okay, guys, we're done with that. From now on, when mom and dad announce we're going on a date night, I want a party. I want you cheering. Like, I want you going crazy for us because this is important. And so literally they sit there now and they're like, yay, like just crying. Yay, like trying to fake it, right? And I'll tell Charlie all the time, he'll come in and grab my leg and he'll be like, no, I don't want you to leave. And I go, Charlie. I love you so much, but the best gift I can give you is a great relationship with your mom. You see, the priorities are absolutely essential. And so when you think about this loot, maybe ask yourself, how are you fitting into this? How is this active in your life? Because when it is, oh man, life is unstoppable. 
all of a sudden your eyes are wide open and you can see what God is doing in and through you in a way like you would never believe possible. I want to end this section with this idea, and I don't mean for this to make anybody feel guilty or it's just something for us to think about. If the way you follow Jesus doesn't lead to others following Jesus, then it's time to reevaluate. Jesus' idea from the beginning was that he said to his disciples, go make disciples. And disciples are only disciples if they're making others disciples. And I get that this takes time. There's people in all of our lives that we're praying for and we're walking alongside and we're encouraging, but the dream and the goal is that the way we follow Jesus would be so attractive to a broken and hurting world, not because we're compromising anything, but because we're freed. That as we love and follow Jesus, others would love and follow Jesus. Well, John continues in his letter, verse five, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and we declare it to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. This is an incredibly important theological moment for him. He uses this picture that would have made complete sense. I mean, when it's darkness, when it's darkness, it's absolute darkness. But when there's light, everybody knows it. The light brings healing, brings hope, brings truth. The light brings to light things that need to be brought to light. The light is an incredibly powerful force in the first century and even still today. And what he says literally in the Greek, it's it's translated this way, that God is light and darkness in him, no, not any at all. This is really, really important that when you think about God, he's not just a buddy that's just like you. I mean, he became a human like us but never sinned was completely perfect, always existed, appeared, but always existed. And he is the complete definition of light. And yet here's what's so beautiful about who God is. That God's lightness did not keep him at bay from darkness. God's lightness did not keep him distant from a dark world. God's all-encompassing light did not keep him from loving the hearts that are full of darkness. But instead, God, full of light, entered into the darkness. That God, full of light, came into that which was so foreign to him to win you and me. I mean, this is why we can rest in his love because he sees everything perfectly loves us completely, came into our darkness. Another way of saying this, he didn't look, he didn't enter into our darkness and then go, oh man, this is really bad. Uh, This thing is gonna take over me. He entered into our darkness, said, I'm gonna lead you to life everlasting. I was in Thailand uh, last year and I was preaching to a group of students and one student surrendered her life to Jesus and she gathered with her friends and she described it this way. She's like, I realized that I was in this pit. And as I was in this pit, Jesus came into the pit. He didn't stand above the pit and say, hey, come on out, come on out, climb your way out. But that Jesus entered into the pit, picked her up and carried her out. 
See, that's what the light has done. Though there is no darkness in him, he has entered into our darkness so that all might be, might be brought to the light. John continues. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Here's where John says, look, look, you, you gotta understand that walking in the light is not a theological belief, that it's deeply connected to the way in which you live. In other words, John wants to say, look, if, if you say that you're a follower of Jesus, and yet the way you talk to your spouse and your kids or the waiter or waitress that waits at your table in such a way that it's full of darkness, rage, anger, then you're not walking in the light. He, he says, if you claim on Sundays to walk in the light, and yet when you get back with your team that you manage and that you lead, the department that you're a part of, and the way in which you talk with people, the way in which you lead is oppressive, angry, that when people look at you, they go, man, I want nothing to do with him, then you need to begin to evaluate and look at yourself and go, maybe I'm not walking in the light. You see, John connects what you believe with how you behave, with what you think, with how you act, that they are always connected. And then I want to look at verse 8 and then verse 10 together, because maybe some of you are going, okay, there's sin in my life, there's darkness in my life, what do we do? How do you stop walking in the darkness? Here's what John would say, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess, oh, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. The first step, if you want to stop walking in the darkness, is you've got to be honest with yourself and God. He, John says, look, look, if we claim we don't have any sin, if we, if we claim to not walk in the darkness, you're only deceiving yourself. And if you claim that you don't got any sin in darkness, then you're only calling Jesus a liar. What is sin? I want to look real quick at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Exodus chapter 20, Moses begins it this way. And God spoke all these words, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So Moses is reciting for the people the commandments that God has given him. And in verse 3, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. All the other commandments, they hinge on this. That God says to his people, the root of all sin is when you and I dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. It's when you and I say, you know what, God, I could do it better than you. God, my view of the world is better than your view of it. God, I want to act that way, so I'm going to act that way. And maybe some of us do that. We go, hey, this is just how I'm wired. This is just what it looks like for me. I'm sorry, I can't change. And we continue to live in darkness. That is a way of dethroning God and putting you in his place. And God says that is the root of all sin. But what, what would it look like to actually start walking in the light? How do we stop walking in the darkness? We gotta be honest with ourselves. We gotta be honest with God about what's going on in our hearts. How do we start walking in the light? Check out what John says in verse nine. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How can you start walking in the light? It begins with confession. It begins with confessing it to God. I want to read you a list real quick from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Now, as we read this list, (coughs) sorry, as we read this list, I mean, it's, it's going to get kind of gnarly and, and crazy, but listen to what Paul says. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, verse 21, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying those who struggle with these things and are actively confessing them and are actively walking towards healing won't inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, when this is how you live, when that list of things is characteristic of you and you are unrepentant about it, that ultimately, ultimately, that's not what it means to walk in the light. And we are in danger. But when we begin with confession, God makes four promises to us. The first one is this. He says, I'm faithful. This means that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. This means you can trust him. This means that as you start to confess, this is what's going on in here. This is the sin. This is the way I'm separating myself from God. This is the brokenness within me. This is the darkness. That God is faithful. Meaning he doesn't look at you and say, I'm sorry, I I didn't know it was that bad. He looks at you and he says, I am fully faithful. You can trust me completely. Second promise that God makes to you if you are willing to confess is that he is just. This means that your sin and my sin, it separates us from God and it separates us from people. We all have experienced this, that when someone else has gossiped about us, we're not okay with that. That when we, when we sin, when we act in ways that are rebellious to God, it, it, it destroys our relationship with God and destroys our relationships with others. And because God takes you seriously, he takes sin seriously. But what it means that God is just, it means that when Jesus took all of your sin and my sin on his shoulders, paid the penalty, died the death that we should have died, that he, in that moment, was a complete, perfect picture of God's justice. That God's love for us and his desire to be in a perfect relationship with us came together and he paid that penalty for you and for me. Third promise that John makes to us that God will fulfill is that God will forgive. This means your past, your present, and your future. Your job as a Christian is not to just look back at your past and go, okay, God's forgiven all that, but now all the sins that I commit from here on out are mine to manage. And in fact, I wonder if this is one of the reasons you don't change is because you believe that it's yours to manage and you can't figure out how in the world that's gonna change in you. And so you're trying to manage it, you're trying to figure it out. 
And Jesus goes, when you do that, it weakens the cross. See, the power of the cross is that Jesus, God Almighty, has forgiven your past, your present, and your future. This means that as followers of Jesus, when we continue to sin and struggle, we confess it to him. And he forgives us. And it's out of that place of freedom that we can then begin to walk in the light. And then the last promise that's made to us is that God will purify us. This is an interesting word. I think it means that God loves you too much to leave you in your sin, so he died for you. But he also loves you too much to leave you unchanged. So he rose from the grave to give you and I the Holy Spirit, the power to actually live lives that are walking in the light. And what's incredible about this is that as a follower of Jesus, this purification process is at work in every area of your life. And as a follower of Jesus, you look at every area of your life differently. You look, you look at your singleness. That for some of you that are single, instead of looking at it how the world looks at it, that, oh, you need to wait till you meet a spouse or go and do whatever you want. These are the golden years or whatever the culture would say to you. That as followers of Jesus, knowing that he's purifying us, we look at the single years of our life, whether that's a short term or whether that's for the rest of your life, as an opportunity for God to use you. Think of Jesus and Paul, the two initiators of our faith, both single. See, instead of looking at your life the way the world looks at it, as if you're missing something right now, you look at it in a way of, God, what could you do in and through me? Maybe you look at your marriage differently. You see, the culture says, man, your marriage, the goal of marriage is to have your spouse fulfill all of your needs and your desires. And once you realize that they can't do that for you, time to break up and move on. Thank you, next, right? Well, Ariana Grande, right? But here's the thing. Christian marriage, you know what Christian marriage is? It's choosing somebody for life that you say, God is gonna use this person to reveal all the junk in me to make me more like himself. Awesome! That's what Christian marriage is. It's God preparing you for eternity with him using the person in front of you. I, I, we're recently, um, Pastor Gene, who oversees our ministry resources here and his custodial team, prepares all of these places for us and makes worship just incredible for us as they set the atmosphere. Pastor Gene uh, stood up in one of our pastor's meetings and, and shared that he had an anniversary recently, and he shared that him and his wife, Lori, had been married for 40 years, which we just thought were awesome. We gave him a round of applause. Gene, yeah, we can give it up for Gene. That's awesome. Gene and Lori. And Gene sits back down. He's at my table, and and I, I do what I always do whenever I hear about people who've been married a long time. I go, Gene, what's the secret? What's the secret? And he said this. He said, you know what the secret is, Eric? Lori and I are best friends. I said, that's awesome. And he said, but here's what's interesting. We don't have a lot in common. He said, in fact, we're, we're very different people. And yet we're best friends. And I said, tell me more. What does that look like? And he said, he said well, Eric, we watch each other's shows. And I was like, you watch each other's shows? What do you mean? He goes, he goes, here's the thing, like, she likes these TV shows, I like these TV shows, and, and we've just chosen to watch each other's shows, and, and I like these hobbies, and she likes these hobbies, and she does them with me, not because she loves them, but because she loves me, and, and I do them with her, not because I love them, but because I love her, and it, it builds that fellowship, that intimacy, that connection. 
And when he said that, honestly, you guys, I was like, this is great because Sarah and I pretty much love like most of the same TV shows, right? So I reduced it to the TV shows. I'm like, this is awesome, man. We're going to make it, right? And so I was thinking, this is great. Like, I can just preach this and other people have to apply it. It's going to be easy. And then no joke. I had written this sermon, came home from a trip this Wednesday. I got home. I was, it was late. I was tired. And Sarah said this to me. She said, Eric, I have a new TV show for us to watch. And I said, great. We've always loved each other's TV shows. This is going to be perfect. And then she goes like this. She goes, it's this brand new show on Netflix called Tidying Up. <laughs> Which literally, you guys, I mean, it, it could have been renamed for me Death by Boredom. You know what I mean? Like this, I can't imagine anything worse. And I was like, Seriously, tidying up? Yeah, and she's like, it's great. It's awesome. Let's watch it together. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, had it not been for this sermon, I think I would have been like, sorry, babe, like, you can just do your own thing. Like, I, I just can't go there. Like, I hate tidying up to watch a show about it and then to do it. Like, that sounds awful. But we sat down together and we watched this show. And you guys, guess what? It was worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it was worse. It was awful. I hated it. And I know some of you, some of you guys are great husbands and, and you're like, no, I love tidying up. We do it. That's cool. Not me. Okay. I'm sorry. Like, I just was like, this is awful. But I'm making this commitment in front of all of you. And maybe hopefully Sarah won't hear this sermon, but um, we're going to watch tidying up for as long as she wants to watch it. Okay. And not because that's satisfying any need in me. It, it's killing me, right? It's killing me. But because I actually believe that God wants to use my marriage to make me more like himself. And maybe, just maybe, through a silly TV show and through this silly experience, maybe God's going to teach me about sacrifice. Maybe God's going to teach me about selflessness. Maybe God's going to teach me what it means to walk in the light. So I don't know what darkness you're holding on to right now. I want to invite the worship team up. I don't know what darkness you're holding on to. I don't know what sin you're holding tightly to, but I know the danger is that not only are you holding tightly to it, but it's holding tightly to you. And maybe, maybe step one of walking in the darkness is confession. Confessing it to God. And that I believe as we walk in the light and as we confess to God, we will see him, we will spot the darkness, and we will ultimately walk in the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together as a community. God, I thank you for the beginning of this series and how you are going to be inviting us over the next seven weeks to die to ourselves, to give up the darkness, and to fully embrace the light that is you. So God, would you help us to be people who walk in the light, knowing that we can trust you, knowing that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Would you all stand up with me?